How are parents in California avoiding vaccination requirements? Using an antibody to treat uncontrolled asthma. Does using a third dose of a mumps vaccine help to curtail an outbreak? And does early treatment of emphysema, otherwise known as COPD, improve outcome? That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on September 8th, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I served up this one from the Journal of the American Medical Association of how are parents avoiding vaccination requirements for their kids today? Now, on some level, I guess we have to give them kudos. They're making sure that their kids don't get vaccinated. And they're using a medical exemption strategy. This is a study that's reported from California, and it's a particular Senate bill, Senate Bill 277, that eliminated the personal belief exemption for the state school entry vaccines that were mandated. So let me take a step back and say, you can apply for exemptions for two reasons. One is for a medical exemption, but most exemptions aren't granted for that. They're granted for personal belief. Oftentimes that's either a religious persuasion or concerns about the vaccine. Most of the exemptions in California are granted for that particular reason. So the state said, wait a minute, that's not a good enough reason because your personal belief shouldn't infringe on someone else's health. The more people that get immunized or vaccinated, the less likely there is to be an outbreak of a particular disease. So what California decided to do was to eliminate the personal belief exemption. As a result of that, how will it affect medical exemptions? Are people going to suddenly start claiming those or will it decrease overall exemptions? So as I mentioned, Senate Bill 277 was recently passed. What the authors did is they looked at exemptions from 1996 all the way up until 2016. And what they discovered was that for the most part, from 1996 until 2015, very few people had a medical exemption, less than 0.2%, whereas 25 or 3% had a personal belief exemption granted. As a result of this new Senate bill, it cut the personal belief exemptions down to 0.5. It cut them down by 75%. There was an increase, however, in the medical exemptions from about 0.2% to about 0.5%. That means that people are probably gaming the system. But overall, the total exemptions went down from about 25 or 3 to 1%. However, it appears that some people are still gaming the system by perhaps claiming a medical exemption or having their physician claim it when there may not truly be one. Exactly. So I think that this is a trend that we're going to have to really watch over time because let's face it, some of these significant outbreaks have come from our fine state of California. So it seems like there's a lot of parents there who may have accepted that whole autism, thimerosal hypothesis that, of course, has been completely disproven now. I think we really need to keep the teeth in no vaccine exemptions. Absolutely. Unless there's an honest to goodness medical exemption. Overall, the first 20 years of data suggests that, in fact, only about 0.2% of individuals actually had a true medical exemption. Since we're talking about vaccines, let's move right to the New England Journal of Medicine. I said, gosh, if we're having an outbreak of mumps, if we give a third dose of the vaccine, can that help to curtail it? This is also an interesting study. It's a single state study. We talked about California. This is what actually done at the University of Iowa. And it's an observational study knowing that they were in the middle of a mumps outbreak. Let me take a step back and remind individuals that in the United States, immunizations with two doses 
of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, that is MMR, as a part of the childhood vaccination program has led to a 99% reduction in mumps infections. That's pretty remarkable. Nevertheless, we still continue to have annual outbreaks, and oftentimes they happen in confined spaces. For example, they occur among recruits, and they also occur among college students as well. In 2015, in the summer and fall, there was a mumps outbreak that was reported at the University of Iowa. Now, to get into the University of Iowa, it requires that your vaccinations be up to date. So all of these students had already had at least two vaccinations, some of them recent to get into college and some of them 13 or 15 years earlier. Well, before the outbreak, 98% of these students had already reported they had MMR vaccination. So they offered during the outbreak a third vaccination and about a fourth of the students took them up on it. And what they discovered is that in those that did, it reduced their risk of having mumps infection by 78%. Furthermore, if your second dose was more than 13 years ago, your risk of having a mumps infection was about ninefold higher than if it had been more recent. That suggests there's a waning immunity. We've talked a whole lot about declining immunity and that we don't really understand it. This idea was that, yep, once we've got our full complement of vaccinations, we're protected until we age into a place where our immunity starts to decline. One of the things that this study points out to me is the fact that, gosh, that might happen a lot sooner than we ever thought it did. And the other thing I would remind you is that for people that had two vaccinations, they may have still been exposed to mumps later, and that would have had a booster response. But now that we've eradicated it, we're not seeing that booster response naturally, and we may need to induce it with a third vaccination as shown in this particular study. So I think there's some unanswered questions here and some places for vaccine researchers to really focus their efforts on this idea of declining immunity and how long does it really take before we need another booster? Right. Absolutely. In this particular case, we're not really recommending boosters. Perhaps we should, just like we do with a pertussis or whooping cough now. Exactly. So we're staying in the New England Journal of Medicine for the remainder of the studies we're talking about this week. One of them you served up is, gosh, do we have an effective treatment for early COPD or emphysema? This, of course, is ratcheting up among the WHO's causes of death worldwide. So early intervention, to me, sounds like a great idea. Currently, the United States Preventative Task Force is not recommending we screen individuals without symptoms. People that have symptoms, chronic cough, sputum production, or shortness of breath, should be screened. And those that had mild to perhaps moderate COPD have not been shown to benefit from treatment where those with severe COPD do. So what these investigators attempted to do was to use a bronchodilator that is known to be effective in individuals with severe COPD and treat individuals with early mild COPD. They had 841 patients that were randomized to either receive the bronchodilator once daily inhaled or a placebo. And they followed them over the course of 24 months to see how their pulmonary function declined. Those that had mild COPD that received early treatment with this particular long-acting bronchodilator had a slower decline, especially if you measure it after the use of bronchodilators, and they were less likely to have exacerbations. So symptomatically, they seem to be doing a little bit better. Over the long term, does that really reduce the chance of developing severe COPD, or does that delay it? This study does not address it because it's only a 24-month trial but sure suggests that as a hypothesis and something that it would be worthwhile following out. It does, Elizabeth. When people have COP or emphysema, it doesn't just stop. Even if they stop smoking, the decline continues. And this seems to ameliorate that 
But again, those are surrogate endpoints. And we need to carry this out for a longer period of time to find out whether these results are longstanding. Excellent. Let's turn to our final one, which is also about lung function. It's in adults with asthma, the use of a tongue-twisting kind of monoclonal antibody. Many listeners may be surprised to find out that asthma affects about 315 million people worldwide, and about 70% of them have moderate to severe disease. Oftentimes, these individuals respond to inhaled steroids and bronchodilators, but about 15 to 20% do not. We have antibodies that have already been shown to be effective that address individual specific targets, but they're only effective if that particular pathway is active in that particular person and responsible for their uncontrolled asthma. It would be nice to have a target that's more upstream. There's been a newer chemical or cytokine that is something that causes inflammation called thymic stromal lymphopoietin, TSLP, and we now have an antibody to that. So in individuals in this particular trial that have severe uncontrolled asthma, they received monthly injections of different doses of this particular antibody, tezapulumab, and they followed them over the course of a year. And what they discovered is that this was incredibly effective at reducing the exacerbation rates In fact, it reduced it by about 60 to 70%. So this is good news. It's a new treatment that may be very effective for people with uncontrolled asthma. And of course, begs the question, at least for me, of, gosh, could we use this in everybody who has asthma and maybe be able to wean all the rest of those folks off the whole other constellation of drugs they need to use? Well, a couple caveats. One is this deals specifically with adults that hasn't been tested in children. The other thing is this particular antibody addresses the pathways that lead to inflammation. Now, those pathways are incredibly important in fighting infection. So this was a relatively small study and done in a limited number of patients, 148 patients. What we don't know is in a larger group of individuals, whether this would actually increase the risk of serious infection. So this is a phase two trial that needs to be tested further to see whether the benefit outweigh any risk. Okay, lots of interesting stuff. This week, of course, I'm going to talk about the JAMA letter on changes to medical exemptions for immunization on the blog. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well.